0: everybody welcome to the rooftop podcast and i am so excited to uh to have you here with us and today we are talking about the power of storytelling um, at a human level it's going to be focused on warriors and protectors but really the the applications from this are relevant to all of us and it's such a important part of what we focus on at the rooftop podcast which is you know operationalizing that upswing getting back to better days through uh, human social capital, through positive interactions, bridging trust and, and getting through this churn that we're in today. And, and the way to do that is is through interpersonal skills. And, and so talking about the power of storytelling is, is such an important thing. And I'm really, really excited to have uh, this guest with me today. She flew all the way down from out west and attended the play. Um, and then agreed to, to come by the fire pit with me today and, and have this conversation on storytelling. And you'll see why this is such a big deal uh, in just a second. But I want to introduce uh, Dr. Kate Pate. Uh, she, she is a neurophysiologist. Yep. And for me, I, I, I met her, as I've done a, a lot lately, on LinkedIn. Uh, I'd see, but it was an Instagram post that she had done about storytelling. And I know I've, I've reshared it. I don't even know how many times, but it was so profound, so powerful. And it, and it talked about not only the healing properties of it, but the community-based aspects of it. And I, I knew we had to connect. So we did. And 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 ever since then, we've been talking a lot about how storytelling plays a role in healing and validating and connecting. And now today, we're going to dive into it. We're going to talk about storytelling at a level that, that you can take away and see how it, it shows up in your life. So... Uh, Kate, thanks for being with us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome to to be here.
0: Well, look, let's. um, Why don't we start with the way I always like to do? Let's start with some storytelling. Okay. Uh, Talk to me about um, your backstory and your journey and how you got to where you are right now, doing all of this work around um, mental health and healing.
1: Yeah. well, actually, my story began not too far from here in Florida, uh, born and raised. Um, spent a lot of time moving around tons of different places in Florida growing up. Um, three older brothers, um, my parents, um, uh, my dad was in the military. Two of my three brothers served. The military was a huge part of my, my family culture. My grandfathers, um, uncles, all, you know, kind of, ha- it's just part of our, our personal story or personal narrative in our family. Um, so I kind of grew up with that as a backdrop and, um, never for, for me, it was, wasn't a question of, um, me personally serving, but just was, was always aware that this was a huge part of what, um, we get to enjoy today, the freedoms that we get to enjoy today. And, um, so that was sort of the backdrop, but we, um, you know, we moved around a ton and my brothers and I were super close growing up. I was a big science nerd and nature nerd and always loved being outside and studying anything that had to do with like the brain or physiology or anything huh. like that. Um, had no idea what I wanted to be. There were a lot of different areas of things, you know, different things that I wanted to study, um, and potentially turn into a career, but just kind of bounced around with, um, what, what that might ultimately be. Um, fast forward, I, um, my family had moved, we left Florida, we were living in uh, Texas and I'm applying to colleges, still not sure of what I want to do with my, you know, with my life, but science was a big part of that. So, um, I get into, uh, the university of Virginia and that, um, year prior. So I mentioned that we moved around a bunch. My brothers and I were super close growing up and they were sort of my rock amidst all of the change and the shifts that were happening. So every time we went to a new school, no matter what happened, I could come home and be with my brothers and knew that I'd be okay, even if the kids were horrible or I didn't make any friends or anything like that. So the year before, so my junior year of high school, uh, or I guess, yeah, it was my junior to senior year transition, my brothers, um, two two of the brothers that were still living at home um, were applying to colleges and, Ended up leaving at the same time, even though there was an age differential. We were kind of one was in a community college, and right. then um, when the one that was closest in age to me was able to go to college and applied, they all they both went together to you know out of out of the town that we were living in, and left the home, and I'm all of a sudden without uh, my my rock. You know, my yeah. brothers were gone and out of the house. I'm by myself and my parents were kind of just like, oh, Kate's fine. She's doing her thing. And they they did their thing. And so I'm all of a sudden kind of without support and didn't realize how hard that would hit me. But my senior year of high school was really difficult and I didn't really know what to do, but I kind of internalized that and just shoved it down and buried myself in in books and studying and was like, well, I'm going to get into a good college. I'm going to study science. And nature and whatever, whatever that career path will be down the road. I'm just yeah. going to bury myself in studies. So I always did really well in school anyway. But now all of a sudden my coping mechanism for the instability in my life and the lack of um, support, but also just the lack of a foundation um, yeah. and, and tribe, you know, my people were gone. It's like my brothers weren't there. I didn't have very many friends at that point. Uh, good ones anyway. Um, I buried myself in studies, went off to college to Virginia and had a, a really hard time adjusting. Yeah. It was, um, my, my, my response to all of what was going on in my life was to run because it was like, something's not right internally. Yeah. But I saw that as I got to fix my external environment. If I fix all of this stuff out here, yeah. what feels horrible in here will be resolved. Yeah. So um, I'm running away. Run to Virginia, worst place for me to be at the time. Um, There was a lot, a lot got worse for me. So when I was there, what turned into burying myself in studies ended up becoming um, trying to control every aspect of life. So I actually developed a pretty severe eating disorder that freshman year of college as another way to control and um, make my world small and constrain as much as I could because there was instability and uncertainty and I felt like a leaf in the wind without any kind of container for my life and no people either and that ended up you know turning into how can I become the most elite athlete I can possibly become and I started competing in triathlons and I just tried to take a really hard approach to all kinds of things in life. I was like, what's the hardest things? What are the hardest things I can do? Right. Like, let me, let me, <laughs> let me figure out what, yeah. you know.
0: And you became like a junkie for that, right? I mean, Absolutely. Just,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, just yeah. Just, yeah. I mean, and it worked, right? It's a yeah. strategy. We do it because it works. Yeah. So it allowed me not to feel what I didn't want to feel okay um so that ended up fast forward i for family reasons i ended up transferring back to the university of texas my sophomore year and then my family moved back to florida and i wasn't happy at ut austin for reasons that were more internal than external but i thought again well i can change my environment change my scenery you know that'll fix this stuff i'll go back to florida it'll all work out So my family moved, um, transferred back to Apollo Beach, and um, I applied to the University of Florida, got in. I was a little bit happier, but I was still struggling with an eating disorder, still avoiding everything that I I didn't have language. Mm -hmm. I didn't have tools for how to feel these really big things. And so again, constantly running away from all of this and doing great physically in, in athletics. Um, you know it, performing and excelling academically and had this big secret that nobody knew about um, I mean they some people knew because of how I looked I lost a lot of weight and you know there was that aspect but I started putting weight back on and developed different types of eating disorders and and then uh, that became sort of this thing that I was carrying this big secret it was like I didn't want it yep. it's like you know when you hear people talk about addiction because eating disorders are it's a process yeah. addiction yeah um, when you hear people talk about this stuff, it could be anger, it could be addiction to drugs or alcohol, it could be uh, addiction to porn, it could be any of uh, you know OCD behaviors even. Yeah. People don't want those. No. They don't want to carry that around. No. But it's, it's obviously sticking around because it's providing some kind of relief. Yeah. It, you're still doing it because there's a benefit. And then you become unable to not even when you don't want it anymore. And that's where I was at very quickly. It was like this thing is harming me. I don't want to be doing this behavior anymore. Yeah. Um, I don't know how to stop. Like I, I, it was just a compulsion type thing, yeah. a true addiction.
0: And then it takes over. I mean, it I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a recovering alcoholic and I can tell you That's exactly how it felt for me. It got to the point where I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired.
1: Yeah. And you don't recognize yourself anymore and you hide, there's so many secrets, you hide things and, and each time you do that, it's like a, a little fragment of your soul. You know, it's just, it starts to really fragment who you are Yeah, and then you create a persona that has a very strong sense of ego and self that is a, a picture of the ideal. And that's what you show to the world. So People look at look at a person like that, and they're like, "Well, this person's thriving; they're successful." And and it's easy sometimes to put on even a smile in those times, yep. and you feel nothing inside; you feel dead inside. And it's just a performance. It's a performance, and some people are really good at yes, that. They are, and um, I was one of those people. Yeah. So I carried that through um, my undergrad years, and I ended up. So through it all, I still had this thread of. I love science and i want to do something good with my life i mean and and this is important for anybody listening and watching just because they're a person is struggling with something or addicted to something doesn't mean that they're not also doing really good things and accomplishing a lot in life and helping people too um it doesn't it consumes your life in some ways but you still are able to do other things too um so i and and still recognize that there are things that you want to pursue passionately and science was that for me um, because I transferred school so much and because I was driving myself into academics as a coping strategy, um, I, I graduated in three years in my wow. undergrad. And I wasn't ready. you were ready. just
0: pouring yourself into it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I went to summer school every summer. I mean, yeah. I, I just was like, I don't know what else to do with myself. I have to just do this. And if I don't and I'm left with space and nothing to do, I'm going to lose it. Like, Look,
0: looking back on it on, in that level of immersion, yeah. healthy, non-healthy.
1: Very unhealthy yeah, yeah. it' was very unhealthy. It was um, it was a single focus, and you know the thing that's tragic about it is that because I was so driven to occupy my time and just keep achieving academically, the ironic thing is I actually didn't really learn a lot. like if you ask me what I studied and you know right. undergrad, and do you remember these classes that you took in this awesome philosophy class or religion class or I'm like I don't remember anything from that, you know it was like I was so consumed by it. And it was just, I have to get a good grade and I have to fill to, a gap. Yeah. It was a yeah. fill it, filling a gap. Okay. Um, which is a, it's a shame because yeah. it would have been nice to spend time with the material and like yeah. really, um, own that wisdom, yeah. you know? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So fast forward, I'm carrying this through and I'm forced to graduate early and I'm like, I shit. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. This is, yeah. I'm t- it's too soon. <laughs> I thought I had another year. <laughs> so, um, a physiology professor was like, Kate, you're really good at physiology, you get this stuff, you love neuroscience, you get that stuff really well, you can explain it well, go pursue a doctoral degree. Don't go to medical school, don't go to veterinary school, go do research.
0: So let me ask you this real quick because yeah. I think a lot of our folks watching and listening, we hear neuroscience all the time. We hear physiology all the time, you know, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a public education product from Appalachia. Can, can you tell me in your words what each of those means?
1: So physiology is the study of healthy functioning in the body, and it's usually broken down into body systems. So you'll have the respiratory system, cardiovascular system, the renal system, and all of the different organ systems, and that's usually how people study it, is by system. Gotcha. It's weird, though, because they're all integrated. So you you study them individually, um, which sort of mirrors our specialties in medicine, right? Like you have specialists who don't know what the kidneys do, but... They're really good at telling you what the heart does, and yeah. it's all integrated. Um, so that's physiology; it's healthy functioning. Whereas pathology would be the dysfunction. So studying the disease of those systems. Gotcha. Neuroscience is the sole focus on the brain or the nerve, the brain and, and nervous system as a whole. So technically, that's an organ system within physiology, but neuroscience specifically focuses in way more detail on the nervous system as a um, whole.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Yeah. So anyway, you're at the crossroads, Uh, it's been recommended that you go that path and work toward a PhD.
1: Yes, and I had no idea, I mean, I had no interest in research and didn't really know what it entailed, but was like more school, more time, more ways to achieve, more escape. And then also that sounds really freaking hard I bet a lot of people don't do that i bet i could do it and it was sort of this all like those
0: things. perfect storm
1: yeah perfect storm of like challenge escape um interest and passion all kind of like dangling this yeah. this thing yeah. out there for me and i was like yeah um so i pursue it so i i apply i get into this program and i immediately know it's not the right fit it's it doesn't feel right but i'm also very stubborn and i'm like you know what i'm gonna finish this i'm gonna see it through Um, didn't like research. Um, you know, I wanted to save all the animals growing up and here I am doing animal research, like, you know, Frankenstein experiments on these animals. And that was really hard for me. Um, but make it through. And, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm very grateful that I did because it's afforded me so many incredible things in my career. So I I look back at my younger self and I'm grateful for that stubborn, you know, person trying to escape. Um, but it was a pretty harsh thing to do to myself. It was, yeah. I, it created so much stress and turmoil, made my eating disorder worse for a really long time. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the physical escape, competing in events. I just, you know, it, yeah. got, it got worse. Um, but I achieved and externally everything was like, oh, Kate's doing well, you know. Yeah. Uh, from there, um, I really wanted to study neurotrauma. So my undergraduate, my graduate degree was more um, brain, breath, body connection. So yeah. we were looking at um, sort of how the brain controls respiration and I always thought that was pretty interesting but I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this as a, right. like how am I helping people? Right. Sort of was the bigger picture. And I was like, well, neurotrauma is fascinating. I have had multiple concussions in my life. All of my friends have, um, and so I wanted to study that and maybe do, do something in that yeah. arena. So I pivoted in my postdoctoral years, studied um, a lot of different things, but neurotrauma was the main thing from there. I went and taught at a medical school in Colorado for a number of years, became the director of research there. Again, they're like dangling things in front of me. Do you want to do this too? Do you want to also do this role and, you know, yeah. add more work to the plate? And I was like, yes, sign me up. I got shingles twice before I turned 30 God. because that's how rundown I was. I was wow. drinking too much. I was not sleeping. I was pushing my body physically. I was studying and teaching and I was just going. Um, that was a big wake-up call for me, but it didn't... I, I noted it, mental note, and then no, nothing changed in my life. I kept pushing. Um, so from there, I had... This was where things started to get really interesting for me. My bro, one of my brothers was a medic in special operations at the time, okay. stationed at Fort Bragg. And I was teaching at the medical school and I had a really cool opportunity to um, be involved in military medical research. And I was like, whoa, this is the first time that I could do something with my career that matters to people directly. If I could create something, a product or an approach or protocol that helps my brother do his job better so he can help people, that's like the epitome of... Um, the ideal career. Yeah. And it also um, selfishly for me was like, oh, hey, I could s- become closer with my brother yeah. by doing this and talking to him regularly. Maybe this is a way for us to bridge that gap that, you know, since my brothers left the home when we were young, um, maybe this is a way for me to reconnect with them in yeah. some way. So that was a really cool place for me to sort of do a 180. And that company actually ended up pulling me away from the medical school and hiring me full time. And all of a sudden overnight, I'm in this new career field um, doing work that feels extremely meaningful. And I am drinking through a fire hose because the way that I work, I need to know everything there is possibly to know about something to to understand it. So I asked my brother and I asked all of my new friends, like, I want to understand what this is like for you. Tell me about what you Mm -hmm. do. What is what does the day to day entail? I want to understand it so I can I can help in some way with these products and yeah. so I just became um, a sponge. You know, I'm going to these conferences, special operations medical association conferences, and I, I'm just there to be a sponge and learn. Yeah. And it was really cool for my brother and I to connect over things for a while. And his life took a turn. He got you know incredibly busy. He left you know left the military and um, became a. Um, sales rep for like um, medical devices orthopedics and stuff so that was also high stress job for him and he's been very busy with that but i continued i started my own company that essentially does the same thing and that was incredible because um not only did i a lot learn a lot about starting a business and becoming an entrepreneur but um overnight it was like all of my friends now are either active duty or veterans or first responders lot in the special operations community and i started to see another side of what people are showing i guess publicly or in pop culture and that was this side of the military but especially the special operations community of the mental health aspect of things and trauma and traumatic brain injury and people started coming to me knowing my background and knowing that i studied tdi in the past and started opening up to me about um, what they were dealing with. And they're like, yeah. you know, I, I'm not okay. I don't know what's going on. I got, you know, blown up a number, number of times or just in training, we had all these ex- exposures and um, I don't know where else to go. I'm a, I was a safe place because I'm not tied to the organization yeah. in any way. Yeah. I'm not a therapist or a counselor. So there's no stigma there either. Yeah. And it was just like a friend talking to a friend happened to know a little bit about something that was relevant
0: yeah you understood the context yeah let me ask you this because i think this is a great point to pivot into where where you're going now but was there a point when you talked about the eating disorder and just the the over immersion into what you were doing where that started that you 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 pulled out of that, and you started to kind of relocate yourself. And what did that look like?
1: It was a gradual process. Okay. Yeah, it, I wish was it I could intentional say intentional and
0: conscious, or did it kind of just happen?
1: Um, both. Okay. I think as I got older, I started to develop better tools. Yeah. Mostly because, and I, I never really put it together until I was reflecting sometime in the past couple of years, where I was like, you know, the more I worked in this community to help other people. I I credit my life being saved by my friends.
0: Yeah, see, I'm the same way. That's where I was going with that. It's
1: Yeah. I I learned because I my heart is I'm a, I'm an extremely sensitive person, so I can cry at the drop of a hat. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel deeply. Yeah. Which is funny because I shut that down for so long. Right. Part of my path to healing was learning how to feel again. Same here. You know, and Same here. I could feel deeply towards my friends. And when they're telling me their stories, it would move something in me. Yep. But when I would reflect on my own self or my own life, there was nothing, it was callous and walls. And yeah. I couldn't extend the compassion to myself. Um, but mm. when, the more I started working with people and the more I started trying to understand, well, I know a lot about brain injury. I don't know enough about mental health. Let me dig into this body of literature on PTSD, or let me dig into this body of literature. So I just became, you know, I learned as much as I could not being a specialist in psychology or sure. whatever. And that started translating to me learning about tools to help my friends and then in turn realizing, "Oh, these might benefit me too." And their vulnerability with me, their willingness to open up to me, it held up a mirror and was like, "Hey, you know, you you appreciate this and encourage this in other people, but where are you opening up? And how yeah. am I how am I personally sharing my own struggles and story. And to me, it was like the comparative aspect kept me quiet. It was, nobody's gonna under, like people hear eating disorder and they're like middle-class white girl problem, uh, you know, somebody who just is bored and doesn't have enough time on their hand. Like there's a lot of stigma around that because it's so misunderstood. And there's a lot of shame in all of these things that we all carry and we don't open up because we feel like people won't understand, they won't get it, they'll judge us. But we, we have to try to explain and share, going back to storytelling, the only way people are gonna understand what this is like for me, or for me to understand what it's like for them, is if we actually talk about it. Yeah, and yeah
0: so true. And
1: I realized I was doing myself a disservice by not sharing my story thinking people wouldn't get it. Yeah, there's gonna be people out there who judge, who don't understand, who make silly comments that yeah. are hurtful. Yeah. But the majority of people who care about you are going to want to understand, and they're going to want to hear it, and they're going to want to relate.
0: You know, there's two quotes that um, I love in storytelling um, that I think are super relevant to what you just said. One, I heard fairly recently, and it was in the context of all the division that's happening in the world. Yeah. And someone, we were talking about storytelling, and and the the quote I heard was, you know, it's really hard to hate a storyteller. (laughs) I like that. You know, when you hear their journey and what they've been through, and And maybe we'll get into this, but, you know, I I believe that, you know, if if the brain is a pattern matching organ, that's a new pattern, Mm -hmm. right? And that's a new way to look at someone, um, as you kind of alluded to. And then the other thing is when you talk about, um, you know, the false narratives that are out there about the the different things that people suffer with. And um, I forget who I'll have to find the source of this, but one of my favorite quotes in storytelling is what's personal is universal. Yeah, you know, and 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 when you start to open up about what the actual impact is on you and how it feels in your body, there's just a universality to that that mm-hmm. people, regardless of race, ethnicity, or whatever, they 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 relate to.
1: Absolutely, it's that felt sense that binds us together. And it and runs it, deep. It runs deep. <laughs> Storytelling is the only way to do it. I mean, you can you can hold concepts in your head, but it's it's art and art, yeah. storytelling is a form of art, but that's what actually gets you to feel something. Yeah. And until it's a felt sense, it's really just a concept. It's not wisdom. It's not it's not true knowledge. Yeah. And I think that the the storytelling aspect allows people to, to relate in those common feelings. And we need more of that. That's why, you know, I always tell people to go back and read mythology. Yeah. Read religious texts. These things that are really powerful and moving that are universal and they're still around because there's universal themes in there. Yeah, (laughs) You know, the The hero journey being one of them.
0: Absolutely. So So funny. Yeah. So you, okay, well, so you were starting to, to, uh, listen to and engage with, uh, your buddies of yours who were in the special ops first responder community. Yeah. And, and, and it seems like that kind of puts you on a new path where you were, Mm -hmm. you were actually engaging and, and, and working in the realm of, of, uh, Almost like a practitioner
1: yeah, I mean I, I be because I worked so long in clinical spaces, yeah. I felt like I had a really good clinical knowledge, and I started initially approaching my friends with trying to stay in my lane, describe the science and medicine, describe the facts yeah here's the literature, this is what I know, and that was really helpful for physical problems like certain aspects of traumatic brain injury or hormone deficiencies it's like well there's a very clear problem set very clear solution here we can marry those two together well but people people had deeper issues as well that were harder to measure hard to observe hard to explain and these are things that are you know related to morals related to the soul related to things that we uh, in modern, at least Western medicine, they discount as being relevant yeah. for health right. oftentimes. Yeah. And um, I started looking at that stuff in my own life too, seeing that there was um, a deficiency, I guess, in yeah. that. I mean, I was raised, so going back to spirituality, I was raised Catholic, mm-hmm. was definitely you know turned off by the dogma of the church when I was really young and kind of didn't have a a religious practice, a very spiritual practice even. Always felt like there is was a God and
0: yeah.
1: universal connection and all of yeah. that, but um, didn't really have a daily practice for it. And so right. I never really, really noticed that that was missing in my life in a big way until I started doing a lot of different healing modalities for myself that I was sharing with my friends. I use myself as a guinea pig a lot of times. Same here. Yeah, uh, even psychedelics. I mean, that is a whole other topic we could discuss. Um, And and if you want to dive into that, but that was another tool among many that I was curious around for myself and my friends and wanted my own experience with that. So um, have have done a number of different journeys with different organizations over the years and um, really appreciated what that showed me and what that brought, but also again, recognizing, man, there are powerful tools out there and i could do all of them but if i'm not addressing if i'm not addressing these other things if i'm not creating community because i mentioned you know i lost connection with my brothers when i was young yeah. and all the moving made me not have lots of close friends i developed a way of being that i didn't need people but I do mm. need people. We all need people. Yeah, we're social animals. We're social. And I was like, wow, I'm missing community, like real community. Um, yeah. I'm missing the real vulnerability and sharing my story with people. Right. And there's this other piece that's missing, which is this, this spiritual side. Right. And I've done all these other things, but why am I still struggling? Yeah. And it's only been within the past, uh, it was only really like two years ago that I would say that I'm recovered. And, you know, I mean, I struggled for almost 20 years with alcohol abuse, different forms of addiction, eating disorder, all of those things. And I was trying to address it with lots of tools that helped move the needle over time. Nothing solved the problem. And it wasn't until I, I had this epiphany of like, man, I thought I had hit rock bottom a number of times prior, but I was in this new place of, I don't know what the hell else to do. I have tried everything and I'm going to die. Like if I don't stop this behavior that I don't want anymore in my life, if I, if I can't stop drinking, if I can't stop binging and purging, if I can't stop doing these things that are destroying me, I'm going to die. I could feel it. It was imminent to me. And it was in that moment where I had this epiphany of it's, this, this connection, like to God, it was this wild. And last night during the play, I, you know, the first speaker who mentioned his experience and kind of finding God, I was starting to tear up because that was my experience. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's Um, so true. Yeah.
1: It got to a place where I was like, this is, this is what's missing here. This is what's holding it all together. Yeah. And that started a new spiritual path for me and reconnection with, with faith and, that's been that that was the thing if I could put one thing that turned it all around for me It was that but it was getting to a place of desperation and trying lots of other things first So I had tools and language and had already started to build a foundation But it still hadn't quite fixed everything yeah. if that makes you know sense. that
0: it totally does. i and uh, it's so similar uh, kind of our journeys there first of all, I have to say the reason I love this podcast is we don't take commercial breaks. We take firewood breaks. Thank <laughs> you we do. You're welcome. No charge for that, folks. Nothing extra. Uh, just, I love it. It's the best. <laughs> uh, but when I, I hit a point in my drinking, it was, uh, it'll be 23 years this December 18. Amazing. And I tell you what, I was in a, I was in a, bad place i had ben owen on the podcast i don't know if you know ben i need to introduce you to him he's cool dude but he um we were talking about that bottom Mm -hmm. that you were talking about and i can tell you i still remember i can still taste it i can feel it in my gut and it was the the word that you said that really landed with me was imminent Mm -hmm. death was death was imminent but also you know everything that i loved in my life was uh the the loss of it was imminent yeah. It was right there. My wife's bags were packed. Yeah, She was taking my little boys. Like, it was over. And even when I started to get in recovery, I didn't know if those things could be saved. Mm-hmm. But I knew that, like, for me, it was the—I was just—there was nothing else. Yeah. I was at such a bottom that I, I had no other place to turn. Mm-hmm. I had tried to control everything myself. And so when I got in the rooms of my recovery, the, the folks that had been around it for a while said to me, you know— Quit trying to control everything, man. Yep. Just let it go. I was all too happy to let it go, to be honest with you. I was so tired. Yeah. Um, so I, I just really appreciate you saying that because it really resonates with me. And anybody that's, you know, uh, watching or listening to this, you know, hopefully um, there's some resonance here. Um, and, and you can find some some points in this journey that, you know, we can't control everything. But did you start to – so how did you parlay that into – what you're doing now
1: yep so over the years of basically just answering my friends calls Mm -hmm. um, and I would get calls from people I didn't even know that were friends of friends and they were like I like talking people off a ledge at midnight on a Saturday and it's a strange phone number and I just got used to picking up the phone because I'm like you know I don't I don't know who this is going to be but might as well check and I mean I there were people who who literally said I don't know you, but I have no one else to call. That's how they felt, which of course, in my mind, they had plenty of people they could have called, but they felt like they needed somebody who wasn't gonna judge them, somebody who didn't know them, but somebody who understood. And that is what I, I was to that person or those people. And I started to learn a lot. I started to see themes. I started to understand more about the community um, the veteran community, but the subset of that being the soft community, the more I worked in the space. And I just decided one day that I wanted to turn it into something meaningful and real instead of just the random, you know, here and there helping people. And so that that's when I formed a coaching practice. I went through a coaching certification process. Yeah and um, some of the work around that was actually addiction recovery, which was really interesting because then I started having more tools and language for yeah. my own experience, but then helping others as well. Yeah. And um, sort of took that into a formal practice and I never really advertised for it. I, I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver because I only have so, so much bandwidth, but, yeah. um, but started to, to share with friends, hey, I'm doing this thing now. Um, and doing it in a formal way. And I really want to um, help and turn make, make sure I'm carving out time and not just, hey, I've got free time yeah. randomly um, to do this. And then I started working with organizations. So they started to hear about me through, maybe they were working with me directly and they're like, hey, this nonprofit I founded could really benefit from this educational process right. that you that you do. Which my whole approach is telling people, Basically, like here's prob- here's what's going on. Here's how you got to this place, given your unique situation in life. We can see a roadmap for where you got to where you are today. There, there's a way to get back to an optimal place as well. Yeah. And a lot of that is physical health. You, you sometimes have to start feeling better before you can have the energy or the motivation to, mm-hmm. to make these other big changes. So if that means getting somebody's hormones balanced or getting gut health addressed or working on sleep hygiene and these basic things that we should all be doing on a regular basis, if if we can get somebody good there, then these other really powerful tools or maybe some of the more esoteric types of approaches Make more sense, and they're more willing, and they have the energy to do all of that other stuff too. And
0: right, really it makes total sense.
1: Yeah, it's just an educational process. I don't ever recommend or tell people what to do. It's just I want to understand who you are as a person and what you're dealing with and what your goals are, where you where you think you are and where you want to be, and how do we get you there?
0: What's it's really, it's really, it really is about performance in a yeah. lot of ways, isn't it? Or how do you feel about that? Um, Ultimately, getting to a place where you can, yeah, you know. operate and flow in your life Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that's, that's optimal.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's about quality of life, feeling good, performing, whether that's a job. Like, I mean, I work with people who are still on active duty who are like, I don't want to leave this profession yet, but it is killing me. So I have to figure something out. And
0: how,
1: how do you continue to take care of yourself, perform at an optimal level, whether it's being a dad, being an operator, being a firefighter, being whatever. Um, what, what are those, what are the, what does that life look like? And then what is that path? And, and, then, there? and
0: then how do you get to the finish line and not fall on the ground in a heap? Right. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. when I did my 23 years, almost 23 years when I got out, um, you know, I almost checked out right inside that house, right in there. Yeah. You know, that's where it got for me and and it got there fast, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and, and it was a cumulative thing, but, um, I never in my wildest dreams thought that that's where I would end up, particularly in a profession or after a profession that I loved so much. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I totally get what you're saying about how that uh, how that manifests. But but let me ask you, let's get into, um, now that we've got your backstory established and the different work that you do, um, you've talked about how much that you work with warriors, special operators, mm-hmm. some first responders I suspect as yep. well. Yep. Um, I would like you, if you would, can you break down, because um, you're so great at just breaking it down in a common sense kind of way. What's happening um, on the mental health front with our warriors and protectors, and what's keeping you up at night about it?
1: Yeah. Um, it's complicated. It's yeah. um, There's a lot going on. There's obviously the the physical side of things. So you have, I always describe it as, in stress physiology terms so whether you're active duty military or first responder there are certain requirements of the profession that are very taxing physically so we're not just talking high training and op tempo and like the physical movement of things but there's also environmental stressors so it could be altitude heat cold toxins that you're exposed to um, obviously the soul crushing workouts and the you know the, uh, different operation and training exercises that you have command climate <laughs> the, yes then there's the psychological <laughs> yeah. stressors okay. uh, and and that could be family it could be health it could be job security or not or maybe you've got whatever going on at financial stuff you know things going yeah. on in life all of those things act on the same systems in the body and activate our stress response system and normally we have a system that's pretty robust and resilient and you can stress the heck out of it and it'll swing far to the left or right and then kind of bounce back. And it's dynamic, Mm. it's meant to be moving. But what happens is a lot of times with these types of professions, if people aren't doing everything they can to take care of themselves in all these different ways, mental health, physical health, spiritual health, they're not really on top of that. You'll have these stressors come in and push somebody off balance and as they're sort of coming back towards baseline there's another stressor and it pushes them yeah. and then they're coming back and before you know it they're so far off baseline because they were never allowed to recover now they have dysfunction and systems are breaking down and physiology starts to go awry they can't sleep they're completely inflamed wounds aren't healing they, they um, have horrible gut health, their mental health starts to tank the mental health and physical health. And I would argue spiritual health are all tightly intertwined. So if you're neglecting things in the physical arena and your, your body is just getting just beat up, the mental health is going to follow. And a lot of it we're understanding now has to do with inflammation as a key component or key modulator in all of this. Um, Inflammation in the body and especially the gut can translate to inflammation in the brain and that there's a lot of literature that shows that's tightly intertwined and and correlated with depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms, and it predisposes people for PTSD, developing PTSD after trauma. So going into the post-traumatic stress stuff, it's, you know, when, when someone experiences trauma and they have a hard time recovering from it, today's world would give somebody the diagnosis of ptsd and that person now identifies can identify with that but they also then feel like somehow it's their fault or they were weak somehow especially when it's a case where like there were 10 people there and two people developed ptsd afterwards and it's like well why didn't those other eight they were there they experienced the same stuff are we the weak ones and it has nothing to do with weakness it has nothing to do with that we're starting to understand that inflammation and a lot of these other predisposing factors could be at play that are out outside of your conscious awareness.
0: It seems like I want to stop you there because it seems, one of the things I'm worried about as we have these conversations, and I want to make sure I I, I say this the right way, but you know, there are um, a range of thought leaders and influencers out there that are taking this problem on and and are taking on veteran transition. Yeah. What are the ones that concerns me though? and there's quite a few of them, is, is, is the men and women that come on there and they say, listen, here's three ways to be great like me. Mm-hmm. You need to just suck it up and feel better. Mm-hmm. And I worry about that yeah. because I, that might work for that individual. Yeah. They, they, you know, they might have whatever in their kit bag that allows them to do that. Yeah. But based on what I've seen, traveling the country, what I've experienced in my own journey, that's just not a relevant statement to
1: make. No, no, it's a dangerous statement to make. It's dangerous because people hear that and they think, well, shit, it's, I just need to suck it up. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard that, or I worked with somebody who's like, I'm, I'm probably just being a big baby about this. And I'm like, whoa, this is not, that's not a healthy attitude. It discounts your experience and it causes a shutdown in what you're feeling and what you're going through, which is legitimate. Yep. And when you hear that over and over again, or you see these influencers and these people who are putting out like, hard, you know, harden up and whatever, whatever it is, like, hardening up was kind of the problem. what got you here. To the, yeah, to yeah. Begin it's with. what got
0: you here, man. <laughs> and, and, and we have a mutual friend in Matt. Yeah. in his podcast, which is so great. So good. One of the things that uh, Matt Williams says that I love on his podcast is, you know, if you had, if you did a parachute jump and and you had a, a like a compound fracture, right. you know, your shin bone yeah. is sticking out of your, your skin mm-hmm. and you're like, look, no, I'm just going to rub some dirt on it. I'm good. Let's, let's, you know, let's keep going with the mission. Right. Even the hardest of operators would be like, Hey, dumbass! Yeah, go to the medic. You can't. You can't perform like that. Exactly. But yet, with the things that you're describing right now, and what you're seeing in our operators and our protectors and their families, Mm -hmm. it's it's not. We're not telling them that. We're telling them, look, just suck it up, feel better. It'll be better tomorrow or whatever.
1: Yeah, it's about oh well. The problem is is a mental problem. You need to flip a switch and be whatever. And it's like, you can't, I tell people this all the time when yeah. the problem is mental, you can't use mental strategies to get out of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've right. got to, you've got to address it. There's a framework. Yeah. I mean, you can't yeah. talk yourself out of anxiety. You know what I mean? Right. Like you're anxious. Your thoughts are racing. You can't use the thoughts that are racing to stop the process. You know, it's, you've got to use your physiology or, you know, there's some other ways that you can, you can address that, but.
0: You know, Chris Vetzel in the play. Yeah. The yeah. Bearded guy. Mm-hmm. He, he's so funny. He should do stand-up. But he was talking one time about he was, you know, he has pretty severe PTS. And um, some civilian friend of his was like, dude, you just need to focus on feeling better. And Chris goes, well, <laughs> shit. I never thought about that. Is that, that. it? <laughs> is that really?
1: It Man. drives me nuts. Yeah. It drives me nuts. And, and this is where um, I think either... I would argue denial or being naive are are the only two explanations I have. So either the person's denying yeah. that in themselves, which is more right. likely the, the thing, or like when I was a kid, so my mom suffered severe depression mm-hmm. um, when I was a kid and I was a really joyful little kid. And so yeah. I didn't get it as like a five-year-old. I'm like, yeah. just be happy, mom, which again, like yeah. I thought it was like a, a switch that could be flipped, but I was yeah. young, right? Like that's yeah. what little kids do. I was naive. I didn't understand it. I didn't have enough life experience to know. Yeah. There are probably people out there who legitimately have not experienced this stuff, who don't get it, who think that that's how it that they, they think that, yeah. yeah. and But I would say the majority of people are just in denial to some degree. And that's like most human stuff though, right? Like you, you um, tell other people what to do and make it seem so easy, but like, you're out of touch with the complexity of.
0: You're not immersed in the context yeah. of what their local experience, their lived experience, you,
1: is. and you you can't know. It's a major
0: leadership problem today across the board. I, oh yeah, my god! Yeah. and, and uh, that's probably another podcast. Yeah. Um, but let me ask you. Uh, okay, so I want to I want to come back to the what you're seeing, mm-hmm.
1: and what's keeping me up at night. Yeah. Yeah. What's
0: What's really bothering you about it that you're worried about?
1: Yeah. So I think the the biggest thing is um that despite well there's a couple things but it's I guess it's all integrated on the one hand we are seeing discussion improve around some of these topics so the stigma is still there but it's lessening because people are talking about trauma they yeah. are talking about depression and i yeah. think that's a, a good thing it's
0: bringing the light to it and getting it, it out is. of the darkness,
1: it's yeah. like hey let's yeah let's let's look at this together and, and people are sharing their stories. Like but we did in the talk back
0: last night. Exactly. Yeah. Like I think yeah.
1: that the authentic form of that is incredibly important. Okay. But there's this other side that, wow. that was really cool. That was a hawk. You're welcome. Um, that's what this Only is. Only on
0: the fire pit rooftop body <laughs> <laughs> Bring in the hawk.
1: Yeah. That's what this tattoo is.
0: Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, so the other aspect of that though is that because of social media there are there's a a platform for people to um i guess i'll say that some mental health topics have become trendy and and
0: talk more about that uh
1: so social media has allowed people to um, use different topics of mental health as a way to gain Followers and a way to gain attention and they're sharing things that really are inauthentic or flat out wrong or false or unhelpful. But it's it's clickbait. It's I want people to reshare this. And so sometimes people are um, performative in a negative way on social media, where when I say negative, I mean, in a way that is, um, it's not really true it's they're they're doing it to gain attention and that i think can be detrimental because then it becomes this thing of diminishing those who are really experiencing that right um you see it sometimes with with ptsd where people are like oh my ptsd made me do this or i have ptsd because they put whole milk in my latte instead of right. whatever. And you see a lot of like weird ways that people are talking about it because it's become more it's familiar. It's been hijacked. It's been hijacked and yeah. then there's the performative aspect that diminishes the real experience that other people have. So there's that that shadow side yeah. to the, the it being that elevated. makes a lot of sense, yeah. And then the other piece that's related to that is the expectation that there is a silver bullet for this stuff where yeah. Like, for example, somebody might have an experience that is truly valid and legitimate of, I did this treatment and holy cow, everything changed after that. That can happen. I mean, I mentioned psychedelics before. That's a powerful tool. Uh, Stellic ganglion block for some people can be a powerful tool for uh, anxiety-like symptoms. And... um, there's post-traumatic stress symptoms. There can be a number of powerful tools that somebody might have a legitimate response to. They'll share it in excitement and like, you guys, it worked and everybody needs to know about this. But what you don't see is the rest of their life and the rest of the day-to-day and how it plays out. I would say a very small portion of people can do something that does radically change their life forever. And they, there's a lot that is resolved because of that. They probably still have to do some work, but a lot of it was done. That's a very rare thing. Most of the time, somebody might have an incredible response to something, and then they go right back to kind of how they were, and they have to keep working. And it's iterative, and you have to... Progress with this stuff is like this, you know? It's the slow creep up. Sometimes you might get these blips that are like a nice little boost, but you're still going to have to kind of like you know, have that trajectory. And with, with the social media stuff and some of these tools, the way people are talking about it, sometimes people have the impression, I just need to go do that thing and then I'll be fixed. And they don't put the work in yeah. before or after. And then it's a huge letdown because they, their expectations about it were wrong. That, that's, that's the scary part for me is yeah. that people are losing hope because they were like, I put all my eggs in this basket, I tried everything else, nothing worked. And I'm going to go do this one thing that this person said will save me or make it. And it didn't. And then they're like left without hope.
0: Well, Kate, we're going to take a break here. When we come back, we're going to go even deeper on this. We're going to talk about some of the uh, uh, possible uh, parallels of this with the civilian world. Yeah. Uh, And we're going to go deeper on resilience and storytelling when we come back. We'll be back in a second. All right. Hey, welcome back to the Rooftop Podcast. We're here with Dr. Kate Pate and just having an awesome conversation that has... um, evolved into well it's cool because you and i've talked about our own uh flaws yes right and struggles and and how that shaped us and how it led us down a path to um engage others Mm -hmm. who are struggling right and you and i share a common passion not just for mental health and resilience but also uh certainly the men and women who wear the uniform both as protectors and warriors Mm -hmm. and and helping them navigate that um but before we get into storytelling, because that's what I want the second half of this to really go into, because you've just got some profound uh, points of view on it. Can you put your neuroscience hat on for a second? I'm not going to miss this opportunity. Can you give me your working definition of post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress disorder? Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about moral injury? Yes. Okay.
1: Um, so there's two ways to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. There's the clinical perspective, which Mm -hmm. is um, somebody experiences a traumatic event and the qualifiers are that it has to be something that is life-threatening to you or someone. And it's either a direct experience or something that you heard or saw. So it could even be somebody recounting a story to you about a near-death experience or um, watching a video of some similar. Yeah. And it's you or somebody in your circle or nearby. Um, the qualifiers to that are that, t- to me in my estimation, you experience something traumatic, it's normal to be off for a while afterwards. Yeah. You just nearly died or somebody nearly died. and. You're going to be hypervigilant. You're going to maybe have problems sleeping and some nightmares. and all, like, That's a normal response. The clinical diagnosis, though, is that there's a list of four categories of symptoms that have to persist for longer than 30 days. The reason that I'm describing this is so that way people understand the clinical diagnosis. But the symptoms are symptoms of intrusion. So nightmares and flashbacks. Those have to be consistently persisting. Um, symptoms of avoidance. So anything that might be triggering to you, you're going to avoid. You'll change your behavior to avoid. You'll take a different route home. You'll sit right. in a different place in a restaurant. You won't go to a restaurant. You'll do things that are right. maybe different. Then there's um, changes in mood or cognition. So um, changes in your ability to remember or concentrate, depression, any, any of those types of things. Mm-hmm. Those have to be persistent. Um, and then hypervigilance, so some sort of hyperarousal, um, enhanced startle, all of those things. Yeah. Those have What was the
0: first one again? Sorry?
1: Um, uh, symptoms of intrusion. Intrusion, got it. Thank you. So those four things have to be present for longer than thirty days and there has to be that qualifying trauma, and then somebody can be diagnosed with PTSD. Right. But to me, the, the thing that I hate about this is that we picked thirty days, why?
0: It's random it's Why arbitrary. why is that? Yeah.
1: yeah. And then there's this um, concept of the symptoms showing up potentially years later. Yeah. Um, Maybe you had no symptoms at first and it was years later. What does that mean? And then there's complex PTSD, which is where you don't have a focal event, but you had maybe childhood of pretty consistent abuse. So you can't tie it back to one event. Right. It was just prolonged. Um, And then there's secondary PTSD for spouses or people close to somebody with PTSD, Whose nervous system starts to get entrained with that person, and then their reactions and their kind of zero to 100 type of behavior causes trauma in that person, and then their nervous system is now developing PTSD like symptoms.
0: Makes sense.
1: So, I hear all, it all these, the time. yeah, it, it, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, but the problem that I have with it is that um, the, the diagnoses and the labels to me are for pharmacologic and insurance purposes only. Yeah. What is the utility there? I mean, again, I'm a researcher, so I know we have to have labels so we can agree that we're studying the same thing. So I understand that. Yeah. From a research perspective, it makes sense. From a medical perspective, maybe that makes a little sense too. But from an average human being perspective, the labels I don't think are helpful yeah. um, in, In talking about it in a way where we identify with the label. Because I think it's helpful to say, I experienced something traumatic and I'm dealing with post-traumatic stress.
0: So is that why you say there's two different ways to kind of talk about it? Is there a second practitioner type way to address it? Well, I
1: guess there's the clinical way. And then there's what you're seeing in the lay population, which I think is is valuable as people are saying. They're taking the D off and they're saying post-traumatic stress. Yeah. Or say, That's what I've started doing. Yeah, or they'll say post-traumatic stress injury because yeah. it's like a nervous system yeah. injury. That makes sense to me too. Yeah. And then there's post-traumatic growth, where it's a it's a turned into the flipped the narrative yeah. Yeah. is flipped into a positive. It's used as a catalyst or crucible for transformation.
0: See what I've started trying to do, and this might, maybe this pivots us into the next definition. But I'm trying to use the term moral recovery mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah kind of in the same way that you're talking about with post traumatic growth.
1: Yeah. And and moral injury it, to your other question is different than post traumatic stress disorder in that it's not a clinical diagnosis like PTSD. Yeah. It's a term like operator syndrome. Yeah. Where we have we're, we're agreeing to talk about the same thing. We're wrapping yeah. our arms around some definitions that make sense. Yeah. And the way moral injury is different is that it could coexist with PTSD because around traumatic events, there could be a moral dilemma
0: where- Like the Abbey Gate explosion? Exactly.
1: Yeah. And, and for, for a moral injury, um, there are some overlapping symptoms. So you can have depression. You can have, um, uh, sometimes you can have hypervigilance depending on what happened. Yeah. You can have problems sleeping. Um, a lot of times there's an existential crisis. There's a crisis in faith for yeah.
0: moral injury. How would you define it at its core? What would you say a moral injury? Is?
1: It's a an experience uh, where there's a transgression of one's morals that has to typically do with a person acting against their moral code, uh, killing, perfect example, um, or failing to act, so failing to prevent something yeah. from happening, or s- some sort of betrayal of leadership. Yeah. So where leadership prevents them or uh, prevents them from doing something or leadership does something to that person that is against their moral beliefs or it's a person in power. So you can think about um, rape as an example of this, maybe somebody um, that a person trusted or who was in a position of power takes advantage of and, and harms deeply that in, that other individual. And there was a trust that was broken, there was a uh, power differential that was abused in that case. Right. Um, so moral injury can be a traumatic experience, but it doesn't always have to do with life and death, and it yeah. doesn't always have to be incredibly traumatic. It could just be a, a transgression of that moral. A violation
0: of one's code, yes, so to speak.
1: And that one's a really hard thing. Uh, to address, because it often involves some sort of spirituality, it often involves an um, inability to forgive, because yeah. at, the, at the core of it, forgiveness is really what yeah. it comes down to, forgiving the other, forgiving yourself, um, making peace with one's faith, spirituality, creator, um, because that, that, those things can become fragmented.
0: Can I share something with you on, Please, on that? Yeah. Is, um, when I was involved in the Afghanistan withdrawal... You know, um, Wes, can you hit the timer too? Yeah, thanks. When I was involved with the Afghanistan withdrawal, um, one of the things that really bothered me was that so many of the leaders that I revered, honestly, yeah. I, I looked, these were like surrogate parents to me, mm-hmm. the generals, the admirals, um, they sat silent, they sat on their hands. In fact, many of them contacted us on their cell phones, saying, hey, can you help with this guy? while right. preserving their position right. without rocking the boat or the policy. yeah, And I interviewed dozens and dozens and dozens of iconic operators yeah. who were just shattered at that, yeah. particularly when we were held to an account for 20 years that you do not abandon a partner on the battlefield. You sleep where they sleep. You eat what they eat. You, you, you stay at their shoulder. Shul- yeah. Shona Bashona was yeah. the Afghan term. And where I'm going with this, Kate, was um, I, I've seen just such a, uh, a sense of betrayal in our community. And I think it is, it is profoundly affecting mental health mm-hmm. post-collapse. And I testified to Congress on this. And, and, but I will tell you, I, I was at a gala just right down the road here in Tampa. Big gala for a special operator. And the guest speaker was a revered um, senior leader in our community, and he looked out at the group of assembled operators and I was sitting among them and he said, you know, a lot of you have been talking about uh, this thing, this betrayal, and you, you really need to stop that. It makes you look like a victim. Wow. Yeah, and I, and I just, it just broke my heart because <sighs> I thought, okay, if forgiveness is at the epicenter of this, buddy, you just lost it. Yeah. Like you, you just moved so far away from any of these individuals, forgiving. Yeah. Um, and I think this is rampant. I think it's a it's, it's a problem right yeah. now that our senior leaders they just don't get it. They don't understand the dissonance between mm-hmm. the leaders and the lead right now on
1: this. I've heard that from so many people. Yeah. And and people across the board that I know, friends and and clients who've become friends, people have been struggling since yeah. then, and it's. They've been struggling in a, in a number of ways. The moral injury is a piece of it. Making sense of it all yeah. is a piece of it. Um, where does it fit in the story? It wasn't supposed to end that way, right? You know, the story, the ending of the story, or that chapter of the story was in, immediately ripped out, and now it's like, wait a minute, what do we put in here? Uh, what is this supposed to be? And these are real people that we're talking about. You know, this is this. These are real events and real people. This isn't some. Um, theory or movie yeah. like these, this is really happening yeah. and I think people across the board are struggling with that big time
0: let me ask you this um, as we pivot into storytelling here um, one of the things that I always talk about when I teach my storytelling workshops and, and, and just the, the the studies that I've done on, on how storytelling shows up in the brain and in communities and tell me if, if this is accurate or inaccurate please adjust but one is that humans are are meaning seeking and meaning assigning creatures Mm -hmm. um and that storytelling helps us make sense of things yeah are those accurate absolutely
1: yeah there's um i think there there are lots of schools of thought you can get into philosophy and psychology and neuroscience and they're they used to all sort of blend together and now they're very disparate, disparate fields of study people, thought leaders in all of those different communities would agree that there's, and there's going to be people who disagree, but the ma- overwhelming majority would agree with you. And certainly my worldview is, is, fits with that. Um, Carl Jung and uh, Viktor Frankl both have really powerful views on on meaning and suffering and that humans are meaning-seeking or meaning-making beings. Yeah. And that suffering is an inherent part of meaning and we, we create meaning from the suffering.
0: Daniel Cole calls it a biological necessity.
1: It is, it's yeah. this, this idea that any kind of suffering can be endured if we, uh, I think Young's quote was, any kind of suffering can be endured if we um, attach meaning to it, meaning yep. like no matter what happens and we assign meaning to it, we can endure it. And, and I, then,
0: think, I think uh, Frankel said, we can survive anyhow if we know the why.
1: Yes. So so similar. And he also said something about um, I think his was a slight variation of what Young said, but it was um, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment we assign it meaning.
0: I mean, damn. Yeah. Right. right. And and for for last question before we hit story time, because this is so important. Um, Do you see parallels? We're always talking about the the veteran community, the military family community and Mm -hmm. the first responder community. Do you see parallels in some of these mental health challenges in the civilian world as we reemerge from COVID and some of the other modernities that are happening in mm-hmm. our world right now? Is oh, there yeah. anything about that that concerns you or?
1: Um, I mean, across the board, I would say that people are having a hard time. Yeah. I think mental health is not good across the board. Okay. And I do work with people outside of these communities. I mean, I overwhelmingly work with people in the veteran and, and first yeah. responder space, but I do work with... Uh, men and women both outside of that. And all human beings struggle. All human beings experience universal singular suffering, you know, I mean, it's, and some, sometimes the most horrific things I've ever heard of have happened outside of these communities too. I mean, it's not, it's not, there's no one group of people who has has a monopoly. (laughs) Nobody has the
0: market cornered on trauma. No. And that's what I try to tell people too. They'll come up to me, Kate, and they'll be like, Hey man, this is nothing like what you've been through and i'm whoa yeah. how do you know that yeah you know don't don't make that assumption your lived experience is your your, your brain doesn't know the difference on you know it was your lived experience exactly and don't minimize that
1: yeah exactly I mean, to your point yeah a friend of mine um a special operations veteran uh, once said that uh his his way of describing it was um a child losing her doll is like a king losing his crown Oh, it's the wow. same thing. And because the, what, what happens then, the felt sense in the body, the yeah. experience is the same. Sure, somebody could compare those two things and be like, it's nothing like the same. But you're, you're talking about relativity. And Not for those context. two people, what that little girl felt and what that and, and her limited experience on this planet and what the king felt in that in that situation, identical in, in their being, in their their felt sense of everything.
0: Ben Hardy in his book, uh, personality isn't permanent. Um, he talks about, um, exactly what you're saying and this nowadays, so many leaders, they just minimize those. And I get it. I mean, I know there's also, there's, there's actually probably reasons to do that because of some of the things that you articulated so well, but the reality is that felt sense is legit. It is real. and, Mm -hmm. And he talks about one of the things that leaders really should focus on, as far as an intention, is, is being an empathetic witness,
1: mm-hmm. right?
0: When they engage, whether it's with your teenager, whether it's with a buddy, whether it's with a coworker, yeah. is just bearing witness to someone's journey um, without judging or criticizing, yeah. right? It's just be there and bear witness to it. And that's mm-hmm. a, that is a powerful tool. It's,
1: it's huge. I mean, it's
0: what you did with your friends, right? When they it's were- exactly it. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it's exactly it. And you know it when you feel it, when you are witnessed, and Mm. not you're witnessed with empathy, yeah. and you're not judged. It is such an incredible feeling. It's yeah. so freeing, and it does you want to you want to connect with that person. It's like they yeah. gave you they gave you a gift. It feels yeah. so There's good.
0: Reciprocity to it.
1: Oh, it feels so good, and yeah. very few people feel that.
0: Almost no one does it.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, that I never really felt that as a like kid growing up, yeah. and it's like until I started doing this work, I was like, oh, I really understand this. See,
0: now. I was lucky. My dad really modeled that for me. He, nice. He, yes, and he. If you want to know how that paid out, when he retired from the U.S. Forest Service 43 years later, there were people lined out the lobby, yeah, because they couldn't get in to, yeah. you know what I mean? Like right. that's reciprocity it in is. full. Uh, from that, I mean that's the return on investment. Yeah. um Well, you you went to the play last night. We had yeah. our um, look right there behind. There's the hawk literally coming up Holy on West to go cow. hang out. Uh, Sorry, folks, we're enjoying the, uh, the hawk right here. <laughs> we'll have him fly by in a minute. Um, tell me, that's not a sign. I,
1: yeah. I mean, I don't know. You love the birds of prey. I do. Just yeah. for you. Yeah, that's um,
0: cool. But you, you went to see the play last night, Last Out, Elegy of a Green Beret. Yeah, it was incredible. It, thank you. It was our final performance for the 2023 season. We're trying to figure out what happens next. Um, but it was a powerful night. I mean, mm-hmm. the house was full, mm-hmm. all veteran cast, a lot of emotion, yep. you know, both in the audience and in the cast because it was our last performance. And um, we've seen and been through a lot touring and hearing the stories of, of, of struggle and mm-hmm. hope and love. And, and so it all came of came to fruition last night. I'm interested in just um, your takeaways from the evening yeah. uh, in no certain order, but would just love to get your thoughts.
1: Man, um, the the first thing I will say is that, and I mentioned this before, is that I wish everyone could see this Mm, because I do feel like those who don't have the words to describe their experience will be able to relate to it and be able to just almost like, here, can you please go watch this to understand? I can't explain it to you, but this will help.
0: Um, we had three examples last night in the talk back. Yes. Um, one was a a friend of mine, Damon, who was a special operator came the first night, hit him hard. He brought his entire family the the next night because to paraphrase, he said that he, um, he realized that his separation from his family could no longer go on and he brought them and man, was it emotional. It was, was, yeah, everybody was standing ovation. Then we had a first responder, a firefighter who was in the North tower. Yeah. Did that one hit you? Yeah. That one just. That
1: one hit me a lot because I feel like they're often forgotten. They're forgotten,
0: yeah. And and, and, and and he talked about the resolution he found. Yeah. Even though it's largely a play about veterans, there was that universal singular. Yeah. And then the other one that really hit me too, Kate, um, was the gentleman that was talking about his dad who served yeah. in World War II. Yeah. And he just, he, he, he said, I he's gone now, yeah. you know, but he understands where a lot of his behaviors came from. So you Mm -hmm. think about that, you know, uh, an operator who brought his family, a first responder who brought his son from the World Trade Center, and uh, a son who got to know his father even after he passed, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. then you brought up an example that you saw of a couple that was sitting next to you.
1: Yeah, they were, um, they had a daughter who was married to a former ranger. And the, the daughter and her husband had come the night before and went home, and he was like, this is, this is incredible. This, this really helped me make sense of my experience. And I know that it, like, he, he kind of got the sense that he wasn't alone. And it was sort of just a mirror, really, yeah. for him. And they were raving about it. And so they were like, if you, you guys, there's one more night. If you have the ability, it might be sold out, but if you have the ability, um, you should go. And I think that she, the wife who was sitting next to me and uh, her husband, she said that they called and that they were running out of tickets but somehow they got in like she told them to come yeah and so they came and they were thrilled (laughs) to have have made it in and and she was in tears i mean he was he was tearing up too but she was sobbing throughout the night and i could feel the seats next to me moving um with how much emotion was there and at the end you know i looked over at her when the house lights came on and she was just full of tears and she said Like, I'm so thankful. I understand now. And, and every civilian needs to see this.
0: What's happening with that, Kate, with the, I mean, I want to get more of your impressions, but I feel like we need to, let's pull the pin on this. And what is happening? Because that's, these stories are being told from the stage from men and women who lived it. They're, they're largely true stories, but what is it that's happening out in the audience with this kind of storytelling and, and what can we take from it?
1: I mean there's clearly a group connection here. Yeah. Everybody is being moved to feel similar things at the same time. There's yeah. there's an incredible power in and alignment in that that we don't often get because we are all fragmented and individualized in little islands these days yeah. and we don't have the sense of community and shared experience shared trauma, you know, when during world war ii the whole country was at war people would come home i mean the transition home was different in that yes they were celebrated but people often kept quiet about their experiences and storytelling maybe wasn't a part of that but there was sort of more of a shared sense of difficulty back then whereas i mean people forgot we were at war and people are losing lives over there and then we're coming home and it was such a i had friends who reached out to me um, who, know, who know what I do for a living, who have no veteran or active duty service member friends and were like, I want to help and maybe be b- more involved, but I don't even know how to talk to veterans. And I was like, oh my God.
0: Oh yeah, there's a study out by uh, Better Together, I think is the name of the organization. Yeah. More in common. Okay. Cool group. Um, but they've, they've done research. Their report is called After Cobble. And I forget exactly what the numbers were, but it's something to the effect of the majority of americans want to help veterans move on but something like 70 to 75 percent of civilians don't even know how to approach Mm -hmm. veterans or or they're afraid to yeah and as a result of that three out of five veterans feel like strangers in their own country
1: they do and i see that because i i have the majority of my friends are veteran from the veteran community for sure However, I do still have a lot of friends who have no ties to that community, and I yeah. see it in that group. They want so badly to help and be of assistance, but they're they're like just at a loss for what to do and it doesn't help i'd say that the majority of veterans are that I know are thankfully I know really great ones, and you know they're they're willing to grant some grace to people when they don 't yeah. have the words. but you do have those folks who um storytelling they have a narrative running in their their mind about they won't understand they don't get me they can't know these people you know and and i i understand that it's very difficult when you put yourself through something like that my brother experienced this yeah um where you you go through all that you come back and you see people acting the way they act sometimes and you're just like what did i fight for
0: yeah and
1: there's that but then If you choose to, to allow that to become your soul narrative, of course you're not gonna open up. Of no. course you're gonna hate these people. Of course yeah. you're going to not make it easy for them to connect. You can feel that with someone. Yeah. So for a civilian who's like coming up like, I want to connect and figure this out. If you're the kind of person that has that view, it's just gonna be reinforced to them that I can't talk to a veteran. So th- yeah. there's that part of it, too. It goes both ways. Yeah, and that's really
0: why I, I you know, uh, I, have you read Tribe with Sebastian yes, Younger? love it. I love it, too. Yeah. And I, I actually interviewed him, several. Wes and I interviewed him several years ago, really yeah. generous guy. But um, I, I thought his his part on community to me was profound. So good. And I thought when he said that line, I, and you probably picked up on when my character, Danny, said it is, you know, most veterans are more than willing to die for their country, but they have no idea how to live for it. They yeah. don't know how to live for a country that is literally tearing itself apart right. along every imaginable line, from race to ethnicity to money to politics. Mm-hmm. And that, that just hit me right between the running lights when I read that, and it still does. And I do think that mm-hmm. that that divides. And so I put that in the play yeah. so that rather than preach on it, because I don't think we can, Yeah. Um, you could watch it on display. You could see my character Danny being that person you talked about that looks with disdain
1: mm-hmm.
0: on the civilian community. But also it's an opportunity for the civilian community to go, hmm, am I hitting my neighbor with an axe handle?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Am
0: I you know am I being that divisionist? Exactly. You know? Yeah. I guess it allows for perspective, right? Storytelling allows for shared perspective.
1: It does, yeah. I, I would say that the the sense in the room afterwards was like we had all just been through something together Yeah, and and we lack that in today's world like we don't have the things that bind us very well anymore so this is a way storytelling but this particular um, performance and what it evokes in such a powerful way is a really unique tool for that and you don't it's not like a book that explains things; you show people, yeah. and so they're going to feel it in response to what they're seeing, and that's so much more powerful than just describing a
0: concept. And this is a big thing for you. You and I talked about this before the interview. Is is for you? It is more about action and doing than yes. than than talking about it or admiring the problem. Yes, as I, as I like to say. Yeah. What, <laughs> uh, what um, talk more about that? What?
1: Um. The only I mean, in, in my experience and what I have observed in, in the people that I've worked with, the only way for real change to happen is is not by thinking it. You yeah. have to you have to do things. You have to feel things for your own personal change, but to change the world, the community, whatever that is. But starting with yourself, you can't think things and be a different person. You have to put things into place. You have to take action. You have to feel it in your body.
0: Like Damon bringing his family.
1: Ha- you have to. Yeah. Um, and then extrapolating that to, well, I want to make change in my community. You can't just yell at people or argue or yeah. exp- you know, tell people what's wrong. You have to go take some action to do something. Yeah. Um, and what you're talking about demonstrating how powerful this is, you're not telling people, hey, storytelling is powerful. You're just doing it. You're showing
0: people. Yeah. You don't
1: have to explain it when they can just go and see the show and then be like, oh, oh, I
0: get it. Now, when we travel with the play, Kate, we go to these cities and you know we'll do the play, and I, I call it our emotional breaching tool.
1: Yeah. Because
0: it like it <laughs> opens so people good. up to the hard conversations, you know, and yeah. their their bodies are open. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible to be closed. Yeah. If you stay in that, and but what we do then is then we run our storytelling workshops. Yes. Yeah. On the heels of that i love it and it you know i think it models what's possible it does and in a way that then the participants in the workshops are willing to explore their scars and traumas Mm -hmm. and and realign with their narrative and i'm wondering could you talk about that from kind of the science side of it what is it what is it about storytelling first of all that has and again i'm not asserting this as a silver bullet but yes. I'm just saying, what are the healing properties of storytelling that we need to be aware of mm-hmm. uh, as we move through this as a community to address PTS and other uh, mental health issues?
1: I mean, at the core of it is, is belief and perspective. So yeah. what I believe to be true of the world and my perspective on the world colors everything about my experience. Yeah. If I believe that the, everybody's inherently bad, the world's inherently bad, or I have a narrative in my mind of... This is what my childhood was like. This is what happened to me. And this is why I am the way that I am. And I'm, I'm like holding on to that. All my experience is going to be colored through that. those narratives. Yeah. The narratives or the story is at the core of, of belief and perspective. It's at the core of meaning. You have to use words to describe it. So that story is the, the little nugget or the acorn in all of those things that because, play a huge role in our lives. Correct
0: me if I'm wrong with the brain uses narrative to make sense of the world. Is
1: absolutely. The yeah, absolutely. And we're um, prediction machines. So <laughs> everything in pattern, we look for patterns. Absolutely. So the more reinforced perspective or belief maybe or a narrative that we've created in our mind like I said the people who um, and I used to be this way until I started to rewrite my own narrative and now I see things very differently but my own narrative was was stuck in the past of like I need to understand why I'm broken why am I this messed up person I have to look back there understand that and I was clinging to things that I I wanted an answer and I wanted it to be a clear cut thing to point to of like I needed to make sense of how I got to this place and so I would look back and grasp at like well that was it or it was because my parents were this way or that thing happened to me then or and I was just grasping to fill in the blanks of my story and that's useful to some degree. I mean, we need to we need to create we need to craft a continuous narrative Absolutely. for our lives. But if it's a maladaptive story, meaning like it holds you in the past or it creates anger and resentment, and it, you hold on to that, you cling to that, and it's not something that you can use as a transformative thing or a thing for growth, then you know is that is that helpful? And also, is it true? I mean, a lot of stories we're, we're excellent storytellers sometimes when they're lies
0: (laughs) so true (laughs) you know about
1: ourselves about the world about our significant others about our parents whatever that is sometimes it's not even true
0: you know where i've noticed that in the in the corporate world where i do work as well is uh we're working with one organization right now a big one that's going through a merger Mm -hmm. right so the leaders have Prescribed how this merger is going to go with decks of PowerPoint slides and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> logical, course, yeah. yeah, rationalizations of how great it's going to be yeah. for profitability and all this other stuff. Right. But what we know is that the, the associate sitting out in that audience, you know, is going to go uh, immediately to a fear-based state of, of scarcity and status. Yes. Right. Yeah. How is this going to affect? Am I having enough? Mm-hmm. And it, where am I going to be positioned in the tribe? Yeah. When this happens, and we also know that they're going to go to that that last story of how this went down and it's not good. Right. You know, like you said. And so what, what becomes their reality Mm -hmm. is actually a narrative. That's not even true. Exactly. It was the last thing that happened. Exactly. And finding new patterns. And what I love that you just said, and I I almost got buried. I want to call it back. Okay. Is you said when I rewrote my own narrative. Yeah. Talk about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, (sighs) For me, you know, I, I'm very familiar with the hero journey, right? That arc, the story. Yeah. I mean, it's in, in many classic myths, and yeah. you see it in modern in modern stories and playing yeah. out.
0: Campbell and Young, all the they people, yeah, yeah.
1: You see it everywhere, and we all have that in our lives. Yeah. And I was looking for the thing to tr- like. I, I was looking for in my mind. It was like I'm going to overcome this stuff that yeah. I'm dealing with these addictions, these behaviors, these patterns, these things that are are. It felt like these dense, dark, like, tentacles that constantly were pulling me down as I'm trying to, like, rise up and, like, be free of, of this stuff that was weighing me down. And I'm, like, looking for a, something, a triumph. It was like, I guess, a, whether it was a silver bullet treatment or something of, oh, I had to hit rock bottom in this way or I was looking for a way to free myself from like almost trying to create a story before anything had happened of trying to be free from I like it from what I was going through of like yeah. how do I what is what is what is gonna be the answer for me be being free from this stuff and I kept looking back to see if there was a way that I could have insight from my past to like liberate me somehow today and I stopped living my life, like I stopped yeah. living in the present because of that. And I got wrapped up in the the like making sense of it all in the way I wanted to, if yeah. that makes sense to you. No, and it, I yeah, totally. And because of that, I was very um, like th- things get worse again. It was another form of control. I want to control a narrative. I want to control a story that I'm. Yeah. My, I want to control my experience in life. Right. And it wasn't until that point of letting go of all of that and realizing like, that, that, that feeling of imminent death, of being stripped away from all the control and realizing yeah. I had none, that, that, that inflection point of reconnecting with my faith in God and realizing that it's not about, um, it's not about trying to construct the narrative that like, the ego wants to create it's about trying to find truth and weaving meaning in my story in in that truth in a way that makes sense to me so for example afterwards after i had that pivotal moment in my life i was yeah. looking back at my my younger years and instead of trying to make it fit this narrative that the ego my ego wanted yeah. to create which was like blaming or i you know i'm looking for the nature or the yeah. nurture ex, ex, explanation for why i am it was like there was a lot of freaking love in my house. I'm not mad at my parents for these things that yeah. that were, were done or didn't, yeah. or I'm not mad at my brothers. Or, there was so much recognition and, and peace in all of what, like the whole gamut of what led to this moment and what helped bring me to, you know, the struggles and the triumphs. All of that. It was like a welcoming of all of the past. Yeah. Instead of picking and choosing this, this weird narrative of how i wanted things to fit together it was like all of a sudden the aperture opened and i welcomed all of my
0: story in Uh, you talk about the hero's journey and i i you're i think you're really on to something here and i want to kind of call it out for folks listening and viewing is um i there's all kinds of frameworks for stories i love the hero's journey i think it is i really do think it's a beautiful framework um Stephen Pressfield, you ever read any of Love events? it. Yeah. yeah. So Steve, so good. You know, Steve has a um, a version of the hero's journey that I think is um, phenomenal. It's of fire. It, uh, it's actually in war. Is it War of Art? I think he talked, or okay. maybe the Artist's journey. Um, but he says, you know, the hero hears a call, refuses the call, yeah. goes on a journey, or meets a guide, goes on a journey into the belly of the whale uh, fights demons and battles inside, outside. And then this is the part I love returns home mm-hmm. with a gift for the people. Yeah. And as I've been working as a practitioner in storytelling and, 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 helping people develop their stories, what I just heard you talk about, and I think it's such a critical component of, and misunderstood about storytelling is resolution. Yeah, You know, is, is, is there is, there is an arc in story and, and it, we have to change. Yeah, And I've worked with lots of families of the fallen and as they explore their stories of their, they call them their fallen hero, mm-hmm. their story starts off all around their fallen hero. Mm-hmm. And many of them that I've worked with, they struggle because they say, I just, it's just not a good ending and I'm still in this place. Yeah, And then I ask them two questions. What have you learned
1: mm-hmm. and how
0: have you changed? Exactly. And all of a sudden they're, well, and they write and they realize that it's now become their story totally you know it's not their fault their fallen hero is honored but it's it's their yeah. story what did you learn how did you change exactly right because that is when you really i know isn't it just crazy <laughs> you're having uh, fun yeah uh <laughs> hawks jet skis i mean seriously folks
1: it's a popular place
0: but you know that is to me is that the real struggle and resolution yeah are the two critical components of mm-hmm. every story. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just for the teller, but for the audience, because that's where we locate ourselves yeah. in the other person's story. And we autobiographically listen and we find meaning.
1: We do, absolutely. And all the things that I, I, I like to frame it, I mean, part of my story is, is including everything about my life instead yeah. of picking and choosing.
0: Yeah. Oh, I
1: don't like that. That didn't fit this narrative. Right. It's like, oh, this is my narrative. And that's
0: what everybody does today. Everybody though, is does. They try to make it three ways to be great. Well,
1: like me. modern psychology, unfortunately, some of these approaches do encourage that. So that can be unhelpful sometimes. Why though? It, well, they, people want to make sense and explain away what they're dealing with, but it's so much more complex than that. And you, it's all included. It's all part of life. Like it's all you,
0: part of the package.
1: Yeah, it? it is. You know, And I, I don't think that that's always helpful to just look to, look to the past for one thing. I think part of my experience was including all of my story, getting to a place, uh, that inflection point of surrender, change. Yeah. But all of the struggle the like white knuckle desperation on your knees kinds of nights and days that I've had in my life. I look at all of those things of like just breaking me over and over and over again until I softened to the point of, I love it. of being like open, really o- open and, and sensitive and, and human again. Yeah, And that it's like, you know, a, <laughs> I don't know, crustacean bashing on a rock. Like yeah. at, at some point you get to that soft under underside, yeah. you know, beneath that crust that yeah. we all have. Yeah. And I feel like the way I live I live my life today is as that soft, tender little creature. But I'm not afraid of being hurt now. I think that crust that we all wear that protects the little soft, tender thing is it's fear, it's fear-based, it's protective because I'm afraid that I might die or might get hurt or might be wounded in some way, and it's it's useful. Yeah, That armor is important, we have to have it, but I think there's a place and time that we hopefully get to where we realize we can, we can set that armor down.
0: Well, you know, the central theme of last out is letting go. Exactly. I mean, even on the bracelets that we hand out. The I green, love Silly that bands, so much. You know, that really is, is my character is, is trying to protect the people he loves at all costs, yeah. but his super objective is to rest in no peace.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: in order to do that, he has to let go.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, but it's the last thing in the world we want to do isn't it? Yeah. a lot of times.
1: It is. Yeah. It's probably the hardest thing. For, for humans to do. What,
0: what do you think, when you think about where we need to go with veteran, first responder, health, just mental health in general, Yeah. where do we need to go that we're not going right now? And is storytelling a part of it?
1: Yeah, I think storytelling is a huge part of it because the, the other thing that I'll say about this, I've worked with so many people over the years and I mean I take patient confidentiality very seriously so I don't share anything yeah. but I wish I could take somebody's story that they tell me about what they've been through what they struggle with what they deal with where they want to go I wish I could take it and like show the next person and then show the next per- because everybody comes to me and they're like nobody's going to understand I'm the worst I'm my my struggles are the most whatever there's always these superlatives attached and there's a belief there that um they're the most broken and that they are the one to have the most shame around all of this and i'm like i have heard your story not to take anything away from your own uniqueness but the general theme of it i have heard it a thousand times and you are not alone i wish that we could use this as a tool more And instead of a one-on-one kind of thing, this is now a one on a hundred or maybe it's just 10 or five or two, but it's like, can we multiply this, this, um, personal narrative experience with the community and with people outside of the community? But again, it's, it has to be done in a way I think that is honoring the person telling it and you don't want to force people to do it. You don't want, I mean, and I've experienced this where you do try to connect with and tell your story to a person who doesn't get it. Or it yeah. it's maybe, it is, your worst fear is confirmed and they throw it back in your face in some way. And yeah. that can happen and that is
0: painful, yeah. but it shouldn't stop you. How do we, okay, I i agree 100%. In fact, a buddy of mine who did his, uh, he did his thesis on veteran transition. Okay. And one of the things that he said and, and that he learned in all of this is that you know, a lot of our veterans don't need therapy. Yeah. You know, what they what he thinks they need is uh, authentic connections with their neighbors, mm-hmm. to have their stories heard without judgment, and mm-hmm. then to walk that path of healing with the neighbors in their community. Yeah. You know, and um, he based a lot of this just on how civil societies for thousands of years <laughs> have brought their warriors home. Old wisdom. Like this, this shit ain't new. It's not new. Um, but in our modern mechanistic world, we've made it hard, yeah. right? So yeah. my question to you is, how do we, because I think you and I have a common interest here. How yeah. do we scale this? And if storytelling is certainly a major component of it, and I think it is too, mm-hmm. how do we scale this in a way that's responsible? Yeah. Uh, because, you know, you saw the play last night. There were 300 people there, yeah. right? That's, that is a technique, but that's 300 people. Hell, there's 19,000 warriors getting out of service every month. I know. So, yeah. you know, uh, we had 88,000 calls to the VA hotline in March, most on record. Yeah. So how do we, how do we get in front of this tsunami mm-hmm. at scale? Can we?
1: I think it can be done. I think it has to be a um, kind of a like a wildfire situation where you've got these like Matt talks about on it, his pod. Hey, see? Yeah. Look at you bringing it back. <laughs> Thanks for. Uh... Thank you, Matt. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think that it needs to be. Um, com- like wildfires, one way, sort of co- like community, community based. Yeah, so you okay. have you have places, little hubs, regions, yeah. towns, where people locally get to connect. Because the thing with the traveling show that that's amazing is you get to connect with so many people from all over the country, which is incredible. And I think it would be really beneficial for people to know those folks in their own town. So maybe when they go to a show, they connect with other people there locally. But I think to continue that, continue that as a a community, finding who those leaders are in the towns that are willing to spearhead that. And a
0: lot of times, they're leaders without titles.
1: Uh, Yes, right. I mean, these are these are
0: resilient leaders who just step into the breach.
1: Exactly, and they recognize the power in it and they want to see it continue, and so they step up. And that's really all you need, a person who understands and is aligned with the vision and gets it, and then is motivated to continue to bring others into the fold.
0: Well, you're doing that.
1: I'm trying. So where, <laughs> yeah. where are you
0: gonna go with what you're doing in 24 and beyond? Where are you, What what's your vision?
1: I mean, First thing is asking you guys to come out and do a show in Bozeman.
0: <laughs> I, I would love to. I would, I am I mean, saying it on record.
1: Uh, we, love, we have multiple love. towns in Montana that would love and okay. love to see it. All so right. that would be um, incredible to have you guys out. But then to
0: if to, you'll come up after and do the talk back with me and the cast, yeah. would you do that? Absolutely. I, that would be amazing. Absolutely. Okay.
1: Yeah. And then keep it going locally.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it
1: doesn't have. I mean, veterans need to be. I think a, a huge part of the leadership. But if there are civilians out there who understand and who are adopted into the community, like I have been graciously. Um, you know, I'm not a veteran, but I've been adopted into the community. If if there are people out there who feel a strong connection and want to start that and can bring their veteran friends into it or first responder friends and, you know, start to like grow this into a community based thing. I
0: agree so much, you know, off camera is Wes. And, you know, he was, he has been one of the main guys that helped me transition. Yeah. And you know, he's a civilian rock and roller, man. But like that, I think that's a really important point though. Yeah. I believe personally that transition of both our protectors Mm -hmm. and our warriors and protectors, I mean our first responders, and their families, I think this is way beyond thank you for your service. Yeah. Like I think we need this the civilian component plays a major role in this. Yeah. And they have throughout history. Mm -hmm. But for some reason we've got this chasm. You know, Mm -hmm. that's the other reason for the play and the storytelling is because as a civilian, if you go for that ride, then you kinda have a a better sense, like you said, of the couple that sat next to you. I've got to go talk to my son in law. Yeah. You know, I've got to go hug his neck, mm-hmm. you know? And I think really that at the core, that's kind of what it is. It is. Yeah, You know, I agree. So last question, uh, second to last actually. <laughs> if anybody watching this, that they're sitting in their community across the country and they, they want to get involved, they want to help, particularly in the veteran realm, the first responder realm, because I hear this all the time. Yeah. But they don't really know what to do. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for them or perspective for them on how they might um, step into that?
1: I think, I mean, what I did, honestly, was, was learn how to be a really good listener. Oh, God, I was hoping you'd say that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you you have to be willing to hear. And I don't mean... Like, I mean, like you can tell when somebody's listening to yes. you versus when they're sort of like, yes. uh-huh, yep, yep, sure. And like checking their, you know, yeah. like you can tell. And so if you learn how to be a really active listener, mm-hmm. that's that's step number one. Number two is be curious. Yes. And number three is treat them like a human being. Yeah. Like you don't go up to an electrician and be like, electrician and, and ask, um, how many houses have you worked on? Let me, tell me, tell me about what your day-to-day as an electrician. You don't say that. So for a veteran, it's a, it's a profession. The military was a profession and yes, there's nothing else like it on this planet and unique experiences across the board. You you don't get that in every day-to-day kind of profession. However, it's an aspect of that, that person's life. It's not all of who they are. So you wouldn't, look at that person as just a veteran like you wouldn't look at an electrician as just an electrician. Yeah. So you can think about it granted scales are different there, impact yeah. is different, but think about it in those terms and ask about the human being.
0: Absolutely. I you know, I one of the things I get all the time and I, I mean I understand it but is someone will come up and they're talking to me and then before I can even start to answer th- or get to know them, they'll say, you know, I was going to be in, but I had flat feet or I had asthma or my mom didn't want me. And it's like, dude, yeah, yeah. that's fine. I don't care. Yeah. I you're mean, not judging. No. Yeah. I mean, I just want to talk to you. Right. Like, and, and that makes it a little uncomfortable for me. Cause then it's like, all right, mm-hmm. well, what are we really talking about here? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, but yeah. we've got to learn how to talk to each other. We've got to learn yeah. how to listen. Yes. Um, what did we not cover today in this podcast? Kate, that you that you'd like to share with any of the listeners out there, anything that you think we need to go deeper on, or
1: oh man, I, I you know I think the thing that I would say we kind of touched on it a little bit is just, um, learning how to be honest with yourself and and look at the truth of your own story too, and like we were talking about the yeah. the lies that we tell ourselves about the world and all that. I think that really Like just trying to be kind with yourself through that process, too. Yeah. like We all, you know, we all have these these things that we've experienced that are difficult to share and looking at that, understanding your own narrative.
0: And it has such value. You know, it's one of the things that I I firmly believe is that our struggles are and, and the things we go through in life have the potential to serve others. They do when we can harness them in our narrative. I call it the generosity of scars, but it is yeah. the repurposing our struggles in the service of other people. Stories are told for for yeah. others.
1: Yeah, right? and we all feel the same things at the end of the day. It's just different things that caused them.
0: Different context. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been awesome. Will you come on again? Absolutely. All right. And yeah, next stop, so Bozeman. Yes. Uh, I'm telling you. Thank you so much for coming thank to the show, you. for making the schlep down here and, and being with us on the show. Absolutely. And, uh, you've really opened a lot. Of, you opened my eyes. I can't wait to work with you more.
1: Yeah, same. Um, it's going to be awesome. Yeah,
0: it is. So to everybody who listened and watched, thank you for being part of the Rooftop Podcast. Uh, thank you for being part of this community that is committed to, to, to getting us back to better days through old school interpersonal skills, human connection, and a sense of uh, deep drive and purpose. We did that in the early 1900s as Robert Putnam talked about in the upswing and I'm firmly convinced we can do it again, but it's going to start with a lot of the stuff that Dr. Kate talked about. So thanks for what you do. Uh, and we will see you next time. Oh, don't forget to go to scottman.com. Uh, check out all the cool stuff that we got going with the play pineapple express and a range of other things. Our, our workshop for, um, human connection is coming up in March. Uh, it's going to be a blast. I'm going to be out in Florida getting off grid, doing storytelling by the fire pit. So thanks everybody. We'll see you next time on The Rooftop.